I'm David Flint. The program is Save the Nation, and this is on ADH-TV, the new and exciting media platform in Australia. Subject today is the declining major parties, or even the dying major parties, in the light of the New South Wales election. And uh, our guest today is very well known. He's the leader of One Nation in New South Wales, Mark Latham. Mark Latham has had a, a very interesting career. He was educated at Hurlston Agricultural High, a selective school in New South Wales. And it should be emphasised that he was ducks of that school, which is impressive in itself. Uh, he graduated from the University of Sydney in economics, honours. And after that, uh, he worked uh, in Gough Whitlam's office was very interest must have been a very interesting period because of all politicians, Gough Whitlam was extraordinarily interesting as a person, a wonderful person, I found, notwithstanding some of the mistakes of the Whitlam government. And Mark very quickly became nationally prominent, rising in the leadership of the Labour Party and becoming leader of the opposition. But apart from politics, he's also been very prominent in his writing, an author of a number of important books, and prominent in the media, both in writing, in the newspapers, and in the electronic media. A few weeks ago, I was listening to 2GB, and I heard a familiar voice. It was Mark Latham, but it was an advertisement. And I was very impressed with the advertisement because I thought that unlike a lot of the other political advertisements, he was choosing subjects which are of great interest to the ordinary voter, to the rank and file. And uh, I thought also that instead of offering bribes to the electors, he was offering real solutions. All of this in a very succinct, short uh, radio advertisement. And I thought that, that was really very impressive. And Mark, I thought you might just uh, tell us today about that advertisement because I think it represents your program for the election. Mark. Yeah, it does, David, and thanks for having me on your show and the chance to talk about these issues. Um, well, the advertisement tries to tap into the two big unspoken issues of the New South Wales election campaign um, uh, with the major parties. Neither of them is talking about two enormously important questions in New South Wales. Uh, just early this week, AEMO, the Australian energy market operator, confirmed its prediction in our state of blackouts after the closure of Araring in 2025. Albanese said, oh, it's because the previous federal government didn't invest enough in renewables. No, AEMO was saying it's because they're not going to provide the backup power for uh, when the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining and the renewables aren't functioning. So... There are delays with the gas peaking plant at Curry and also Malcolm Turnbull's white elephant in waiting, Snowy 2.0. Mm. Um, so we're going to have uh, blackouts and um, it's very important uh, for the state in that it's a, a disaster, manufacturing, retail, mining, investment. It's a social problem. The lights go out, the traffic lights go out, schools, hospitals are finding it hard to function. Uh, it's a real crisis that's looming in just two years' time. And Dominic Perrottet, when asked about this at Budget Estimates, said, oh, I better take some advice. Well, shouldn't you have that problem sorted out already? And Chris Minns will make it worse by going further down the renewables rabbit hole. Uh, so our One Nation 
solution is to um, um, end the so-called transition to a clean energy economy, stop the rewiring of the nation, stop the madness of closing down the uh, existing power system, um, the coal-fired power. We need also in New South Wales to build an additional gas beaking plant pronto and to lift the ban on nuclear energy because nuclear is the long-term solution to all these problems. It's a reliable 24-7 baseload power that's safe and it's carbon-free. So it, it's the obvious answer to satisfy both sides of this uh, dreadful climate change debate. And the second issue is uh, in school education, where New South Wales has had the fastest falling school academic results in the world, uh, not just Australia, in the entire world. And uh, it goes to the paradox of schools policy in that, David, um, uh, schools policy has been studied, researched inside out all over the world. We've got a stack of reports on what works in the classroom and what doesn't work, a stack so high you couldn't jump over them. So how hard is it to follow the evidence of what works? Direct instruction, teaching, phonics in literacy, uh, strong behavioural standards, regular testing and data measurement, individual student uh, assessment plans. They're the things that work in the classroom, but unfortunately, under Adrian Pickley, he said, uh, local schools, local decisions, you can just do whatever you like out in the classroom. And all the leftist fads and experiments and political indoctrination have driven down our school results. So our policy is quite simply just get back to the evidence of what works in the classroom and do the things that add high value to student learning and student outcomes. If we can go back, Mark, to energy, uh, the AEMO seem to offer the solution of spending a lot of money on accelerating renewables and on transmission. Are those the solutions to the problem? No, they are the problem, David. They are the problem. Australia is the only country in the world that has a thing called rewiring the nation, which basically means we used to have the most affordable, reliable electricity system in the world, the coal-fired power stations down the east coast, uh, wired up, mainly where the people live. And now they're saying, oh, that needs to close and we have to go to the expense of building wind farms and solar farms that don't operate 24-7 in the western reaches of New South Wales and the huge astronomical expense of building new transmission wires, very often through tracts of agricultural land and through communities that don't want these hideous uh, transmission towers, uh, to hook in to the grid uh, the solar and the wind at the back of Burke. So um, all of that is massively expensive. And who's paying for it? Uh, obviously consumers and taxpayers. And it's the reason why the electricity prices have gone through the roof. You see, David, the great con in this debate was 10 years ago when the advocates of uh, rewiring the nation and a whole new electricity grid said, oh, we can save the planet. That's false. We can save the planet by doing this and it won't really cost anyone anything. They thought sort of magic dust would fall from the sky and there'd be no cost. The costs are hundreds of billions of dollars to rebuild an entire electricity grid unnecessarily and, and, and the transmission and backup power that goes with it. I mean, the reason we'll have blackouts is they haven't got the pumped hydro to back up the um, uh, windmills and, and solar farms when, uh, when they're not operational. We haven't got the gas peaking plants in place to provide the backup power. So um, it's, it's a disaster in waiting that people are already paying for through higher electricity prices. And for AEMO to say that justifies the reality of the problem that we're already aware of. If the, if the 
theory of global warming, man-made global, global warming is true, and I doubt that, but just say, let's say it's true. It's just not going to work, is it? This idea of net zero, if the communist Chinese and the Indians and others don't fulfill their promises in relation to reducing their emissions. If they don't reduce their emissions, what can Australia possibly do apart from destroying ourselves? Well, that's the valid point. This is all unnecessary. I mean, bad public policy is made worse when it's not necessary in the first place. And the uh, immediate past chief scientist of Australia, Alan Finkel, an advocate of renewables, when asked that uh, the budget estimates in Canberra had to admit that Australia getting rid of its 1.3% of carbon emissions globally will have no impact, no real impact on global surface temperatures. So if we're destroying jobs and sending electricity prices sky high in Australia, turning everything upside down and providing all this investment uncertainty, you'd think, well, surely it must have some positive in impact in, in what the lefties say, saving the planet. Well, Alan Finkel said no. And here in New South Wales, we have 0.4% of global uh, uh, emissions. But Matt Keane, in one of the great God complexes of politics, thinks he can save the planet. Uh, we got the Parliamentary Library here to do an analysis of what all the Matt Keane green energy spending, uh, rewiring the electricity grid, uh, renewables, electric vehicles, the whole box and dice, the whole Keane green program, what would it achieve in terms of uh, lowering global surface temperatures, that is responding to so-called climate change? And the answer came back that the Keen program, which is so disruptive, will reduce global surface temperatures by 0 0.00055 degrees Celsius over a century, <laughs> over a century. So essentially nothing, essentially nothing. Is and that, why uh... would you do these things? Mark, is that available, that uh, analysis of the Keen program? Can yes, people yes, see it? Yes, I've mentioned it many times. Yeah, yeah, sure. I've mentioned it many times in the Parliament and the media. You won't see it on the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald or the Guardian, but because the headline would read, um, Keen spending tens of billions and disrupting the New South Wales economy to achieve a net outcome of 0 0.00055 degrees Celsius over a century, which just points to the ludicrous... Like, I mean, future historians, David, will write this stuff up as insanity. It but, will have a chapter in history books under the heading of insanity because that's what it is. But, Mark, uh, when, they, when they meet in the caucus, when the Liberals meet in their party meeting, surely the backbenchers know this. Why don't they, why don't they raise this and call on their leaders to slow down? and not go ahead with this rush into renewables when they're destroying the, the one sources of uh, reliable and uh, cheap energy in the state? Well, renewables have become a cult. Uh, it's got nothing to do with outcomes or evidence or a rational assessment of public policy. Uh, it's a cult. For the Liberal Party now, unfortunately, the renewables lobby, the, the rent seekers, uh, fund election and factional um, internal slush funds. That's well known. And their caucus members have become financially reliant on this source of uh, a campaign and, and factional income. And uh, Matt Keane, you know, leads a group, I've got to say, David, the so-called moderates, the left wing of the New South Wales Liberal Party, leads a group that's essentially brain dead. Um, you know, these characters really couldn't assess 
any evidence in a reasonable way. So Keen prevails as part of the renewables cult and um, in the not distant future, we're going to pay a very, very heavy price for this lunacy. If you follow the money in relation to the authorised renewables, they won't go near nuclear, as you rightly say, but if you follow the money in relation to the authorised renewables, it all goes back to communist China. They're making the money out of wind and they're making the money out of solar, but they're not doing it themselves. Are they laughing all the way to the bank? Yeah, yeah, I always say every morning in those little uh, Politburo offices in Beijing, they open up the latest Matt Keane announcement and fall off their chairs laughing because we don't make a single solar panel in New South Wales. We don't make a single wind turbine. We don't make a single electric vehicle. So effectively, we're destroying our own economy. The IPA earlier this week pointed out that net zero in New South Wales will cost 138,000 jobs. So we're destroying jobs here and exporting them to China who've just got to sit back and think, well, in China, we increase our emissions by the Australian total every year, so they're not following any international agreements. They're building new coal-fired power stations like they're going out of fashion, and um, uh, they're generating the um, solar, wind and electric vehicle jobs that um, Australia is funding. So, again, um, can you think of anything worse than a futile, unnecessary policy wrecking our economy, building up the Chinese economy uh, in a way that um, can only be described as uh, absurd. And benefiting the billionaire plutocrat communists in Beijing. What, what I found... Yeah, you know, a non-democratic state um, that, that on the national security front mm. uh, poses some long-term risk to Australia. So why, why would you be gener- destroying your own jobs to generate jobs in a country that our national security advisers say is a long-term concern? Yes, I find it extraordinary, though, that the politicians of both parties should be pushing this. That IPA report about the substantial loss of jobs as a result of net zero pointed out, if I recall correctly, that most of those jobs were in regional and outer suburban electorates, not in the inner city elite electorates, which both the principal parties seem to be concentrating on. Yeah, very good point. And where's the National Party in all of this? Uh, John Barillaro said that net zero in New South Wales would lead to the destruction of mining and agricultural industries in our state. Yet they voted for it and they still support it. And the IPA report says it's rural and regional communities that will bear the heavy burden of the 138,000 job losses. And, and, and David, you've only got to look at this election campaign to see the whole gutting and hollowing out of the National Party's uh, traditional purposeful role in, in, in looking after those communities because having conceded to these job losses and industry destruction and net zero and renewables, their only electoral tactic now in the National Party is to bribe people. And they're running out of uh, valid ways in which to dish out the money. In this election campaign, they've announced $5,000 grant to a pea plater in country New South Wales who buys a new car and they're also paying parents to take their children to a Saturday sport. Now, one of the things... Um, in the city that we've always admired about the bush was their self-reliance, their entrepreneurship and their sense of um, individualism. Well, that's being smothered now by a new welfare state and, and electoral bribes in the bush that I think runs counter to the traditional ethos of the bush, which is always about standing up and, and earning income and, and, and being self-reliant and resilient. That's being smothered by this new National Party welfare state.
I wonder what Blackjack McEwen would have thought of this sellout of uh, agriculture in favour of making the, the people in the country dependent, welfare dependent on government. Well, I just think, you know, I, I was at a forum with Paul Till, the National Party leader on Tuesday, and he said he read out the long, long list of grants and funding programs, and he said, oh, this is how we're building communities. Wrong. I said to him, you're, you're wrong, Paul Tool, in that you don't build communities through welfare dependency. Community life, civil society at its core, must rely on individual self-reliance and entrepreneurship and a capacity to make an income and not being permanently on the teeth of government. So the National Party think this is a clever strategy, but I think it destroys one of the great ethoses of our nation, and that's uh, uh, Bush countryside resilience, farming resilience. This was the, uh, the great mistake that was made when Holt appointed Nugget Coombs to head Aboriginal affairs, and they turned the Aboriginal people in the remote communities into welfare-dependent people rather than the resilient people that they were previously. And this has been a great part, I think, in the, in the serious problems in creating the gap the gap, I think, is a problem of government activity going right back to Nugget Coombs rather than any other reason. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, add to it the last 15 or 20 years of uh, victimhood rhetoric. If you now talk to the average Indigenous out in western New South Wales, I was out there in our winter recess, and the expectation is that uh, they can earn an income without ever working, that their kids can get an education qualification without going to school, that people can get housing without having to uh, earn it. And uh, if you tell any bunch of people um, consistently uh, over a 20-year period, you're victims of things that happened 200 years ago and we owe you, we owe you reparations and compensation for that, well, it will create a victimhood mentality where people just um, sink deeper and deeper into welfare dependency and, and, and with that comes drug and alcohol dependency, horrendous rates of child sexual abuse, uh, effectively, the leftist programs, both in welfare handouts and victimhood rhetoric, is destroying Indigenous life and culture. As we know, and as you point out, uh, historically, it's been a, a, a self-reliant, proud culture now destroyed, smothered by the left uh, in ways that are completely counterproductive. It reminds me of those that famous phrase or sentence by. Ronald Reagan, who said that the most frightening sentence in the world is, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. And that in many ways reflects that. And it seems that the, the National Party, the old country party, is doing the same to country people in New South Wales. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, government has a role. Government has a role as a facilitator, providing a basic safety net funding services that clearly won't be provided by the private sector in, in health and education. But uh, when government gets to the point of paying people to take their kids to Saturday sports, something that any parent loves doing, and you'd never think, oh, I need to be paid to do this as part of you know who I am as a parent, as a family person, uh, and, and paying pea platers to, to, to get a new car when all these cars need to pass safety checks anyway. I mean, when you get to that point uh, of smothering country people in money, it's, it's, a, it's a, a desperate electoral tactic, but also, counterproductive in, in terms of uh, too much welfare, too much debt and deficit too. Yeah. I mean, we've got a government debt here, gross debt of $182 billion. Is it really time to be paying people to take their kids to sport? It's extraordinary the way bribes are being offered to the electors. Both of the principal parties seem to be in the business 
of offering money, the taxpayers' money, to the electors to get the electors to vote for them. That seems to me to be not really a very uh, nationally or state-interested approach to policy. It seems to be just trying to buy votes from the electors and uh, hoping that the electors are foolish enough to think that uh, this is free money. There's no such thing as free money, is there, Mark? No, no, no. And, and, and this is a hangover of the COVID period where, unfortunately, there's grown a perception that debt and deficit doesn't matter anymore. Well, it, it'll matter certainly in the next crisis when we won't have the capacity to, to fund anything because the, the trillion-dollar debt in Canberra, the $182 billion debt in Macquarie Street, um, these economic fundamentals haven't gone away uh, because of a, a virus and we need to get back to some... Um, basic economic responsibility. I mean, I did an analysis of the last two budgets here in New South Wales, the first one by Perrottet as Treasurer and then the Matt Keane one last year. David, there were 362 discretionary policy changes. So these are, you know, optional changes the government makes, 362. And of those, only three of them were spending cuts. The other 359 were spending increases, which just shows you we've now got a, a culture of a profligate government that our great-great-grandkids will be paying for. Mark, you're, you're an honours graduate in economics. You'd understand that there's some relationship, surely, from this debt and the inflation we're experiencing, isn't there? Isn't that related somehow yeah. to government debt at the state and federal level? Yeah, well, directly related in that it obviously stimulates the economy. If governments run big budget deficits, it stimulates the economy by putting more money in that's needed. It creates uh, activity at a time when uh, the COVID lockdowns and other problems generated supply chain uh, blockages. So uh, demand goes up because of the deficits. Supply is limited because of the supply chain problems. So inflation goes up. That, that, that's your inflation formula right there, uh, generating the interest rate increases from a a, um, a, a, an incompetent reserve bank that uh, acted um, uh, too late and too slow to do something about the problem that was looming. The reserve banks seemed to always overshoot, didn't they? They went too low, then they, they're going too high. They seem to be missing the point. Did you notice the other day that uh, uh, they'd handed over, there was a freedom of information application, and they'd handed over the decision on whether the king should be on the $5 note. They'd handed it to the federal treasurer, yet he pretended when he gave his, his statement, his statement on this, he pretended this was a decision of the Reserve Bank. It seems as though the Reserve Bank may be frightened of the treasurer. Why would they, why would they hand the decision to the treasurer on this question of whether the king should be on the $5 note, do you think? Well, the Reserve Bank Governor, who's messed up interest rate policy, is up for reappointment, isn't he? That's probably yes. why he's scared of the Treasurer. <laughs> he doesn't want to upset the Treasurer. The Treasurer obviously wants to put some Indigenous motive on the $5 note instead of the traditional approach. I mean, when we, if and when we vote for a republic, you can do whatever you like with the currency, but until such time, we should continue the, uh, the standard practice. So I think Philip Lowe, who's, you know, obviously under the pump and probably should resign given the policy mistakes he's made. He's probably hoping for reappointment and this sort of uh, concession to Jim Chalmers might help him. His extraordinary, the, the governor's extraordinary action was to give this promise or, or advice uh, 
that uh, there'd be no major or no, no interest rate rises till 2024 and people acted on that, then they were entitled to act on that, surely. Yeah. I think yeah, that's unacceptable. Yeah, well, that's a resignation error right there. I mean, if you say to homeowners and business people, you can rely on stable interest rates for the next couple of years, so make your investment decisions accordingly, and you get that so wrong. Uh, and we've had uh, this volley of increases, one every month now, um, then obviously that's the biggest monetary policy mistake in Australian economic history, and Lowe should be responsible for it. But, David, I've got to point out, I did call out Philip Lowe uh, four or five years ago. I got sacked from Sky News for saying this, along with other miscellaneous sins. <laughs> but he made a statement. He made a statement, Lowe, about five years ago that his daughter said to him, there's not enough women economists working at the Reserve Bank. And Lowe said, oh, well, based on my teenage daughter's advice, I'm going to change the employment policy of the Reserve Bank to have gender equity. Well, I think what you need at the Reserve Bank, whether people are male or female, straight or gay or black or white or any other personal characteristic, you need highly qualified, competent economists. I don't care what they look like. They've just got to be highly competent and trained to get it right. And I said at the time, well, have we really got a governor of the central bank now who takes his employment policy from his teenage daughter? Surely, <laughs> surely this is just nuts. And anyway, I, I said this, that, you know, it was around against, it swam against the tide of gender equity and I said I was picking on the door. I wasn't picking on the door. I said, Philip Lowe's a fool to be taking advice from a teenage girl about something as important as the competence of his economists at the Reserve Bank. So I've, I've had a very low opinion of this guy for a long while and I think shortly he'll be gone. Have you noticed whenever you pass a construction site, you're driving along and there are people who are holding stop signs and slow down signs. Nowadays, they're always girls, I've noticed. And there's obviously a policy to increase the number of women in the construction industry. But I've also noticed in my suburb, when the garbage people come to pick up the garbage, there are no women involved with them. And I think, do you think I should write to Waverley Council and suggest that they should apply gender equity when it comes to garbage uh, pickups? Yeah, yeah. And same thing as uh, down at the sewerage works. <laughs> uh, not many women and girls are wanting to work down there, but, but not many, like being on the, 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 the lollipop person to stop go is not actually a construction job. Not many women actually want to work on a building site, which is hard physical work, has a higher than average mortality rate, accident rate, workers' compensation claims. Quite rightly, um, if I said that to my 15-year-old daughter, oh, you can be a construction worker, she'd say, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, her and her friends want to be doctors, scientists, engineers, teachers, lawyers. I mean, you know, the, 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 there are gender differences and all the studies, behavioural studies, have always shown that men prefer working with things, with, often with their hands or IT, whereas uh, women prefer working with people directly and they tend and, and, and now in Australia we have female dominated professions like GP doctors uh, dentists vets uh, lawyers teachers you know well regarded highly paid jobs uh, that the women prefer rather than working on a uh, a construction site as a uh, brickies laborer well that uh, probably is the point to come back to education which was the other big thing that featured in your advertisement and I I thought you very quickly nailed that and nailed the failure of both sides in politics in relation to education. Mark, you 
were educated as I was in a selective school, state high school. And I assume you had as good an education as I did. I had a very good education in a, at Sydney Boys High. Uh, uh, but I am sure that the education that I received, and you're younger than me, but probably you received, is very different from the sort of education that is being offered in the school today. And I think that the way they educated then and the discipline which prevailed was very important. Do you see these as uh, the way in which education has changed, the way in which the curriculum has changed? These are the reasons, are they not, for the serious decline in education in Australia. It's not the lack of money. There's an enormous amount of money has been put in. It's not the small classes, not having small classes. It's giving up tried and tested ways of educating. Is that not the, the reason? Yeah, absolutely. The biggest impact upon um, student uh, results is the quality of teaching. And if the teaching moves away from direct instruction, the teacher standing in front of the classroom have a, having a rich interchange of ideas and concepts and knowledge with the students and moves into the latest fad, which is teachers as facilitators. This is where the students are supposed to be self-starting learners. They sit around the table in a small group, self-starting, getting their information off the internet. Normally one student does all the work and that causes resentment while the teachers walk around the classroom with a cup of coffee acting as facilitators. So that's a losing strategy. Teachers have got to teach. Teachers have got to be direct instructors of their class. And discipline has fallen away. Uh, you can't learn in a chaotic environment. You need orderly uh, environment around you in which to concentrate and learn. Whole word in, in literacy has been a disaster instead of the proven advantages of phonics sounding out the words, um, the the, uh, the left-wing push against testing and assessment. I mean, schools without tests, it's like a hospital without doctors. You've got to test <laughs> and know where the students are up to and get results. And then students that have fallen behind do the remedial um, uh, intensive work that's needed to, to bring them back, back up back up to scratch. So, yeah, David, uh, I look back on my time at Hurlston in the 1970s and think how lucky I was just saying English to learn grammar to study the classics of Shakespeare, Dickens, Orwell, uh, all of whom I, uh, I studied. And today uh, you can go to an English class where there'll be lessons about the voice, about gender equity, about Bruce Pascoe, about Black Lives Matter, about hating the New South Wales police. You know, English, sadly, in the way it's taught in our schools now, is much closer to a left-wing political science tutorial. And for these teenagers, uh, it's a real tragedy. I can remember my primary school, which was in Waverley, near Sydney, Sydney suburb. And in the boys' class, we had separate classes for boys and girls in the primary. In the boys' class, I would say that all of the students in that class, they didn't all go to a high school, some went to technical schools. But I would say all of the boys in that class were literate and they were numerate, all of them. But nowadays, the standard of literacy and numeracy among boys is appallingly low. And I put that down, I agree with you entirely, I put that down to the change in the methods of teaching. We learned our, our tables, we had to recite tables for mathematics, which is the basis of applying mathematics. We had to write, we had to speak, and this applied to all the boys, and there was no 
rate, I don't think, of numeracy. No, no, there were not any students there who were innumerate. There were no illiterate students in that class. And I think that was probably typical of a class of students in Australia in those days. Do you agree? Yeah, yeah no, I, well, I, I went to primary school in uh, a public housing estate in Green Valley on the outskirts of Liverpool. So it was a very, very low-income area. People who rented didn't even own their own house. Um, and looking back at my classes at Ashcroft Public School, uh, it was unthinkable, completely unthinkable, that people would leave that school unable to read. But today in New South Wales, we have 17,000 students each year starting high school, year seven, who are semi-illiterate. So the, the, the decline in the basics of literacy and this uh, cancer of whole word teaching, which is torture for uh, very young children in, in, in how to read, um, you know, instead of phonics, which is proven, and, and the method of teaching, yeah, 17,000 starting year seven who are semi-illiterate. Um, and where do they end up? Where, you know, they are the welfare-dependent, um, trouble-on-the-streets people of the future. And uh, education is the best early education, effective early education is the uh, very best investment we can make to avoid the costs of the welfare state. And Mark, uh, we're, we're knowing all this information, we're knowing the rates of illiteracy and innumeracy from the NAPLAN tests, which are very important. Mm -hmm. But did you notice a couple of weeks ago, there was a meeting of federal and state ministers and uh, the proposals was put to them by the curriculum authority to change the testing and to change it in such a way that it would be very difficult to know these results. It would be very difficult to find out that people were failing. It would be also difficult to compare tests between schools, apparently, and over time. This was the assessment of those changes. What I found surprising, well, perhaps it wasn't so surprising, was that every minister, federal and state, both uh, Labor and coalition, all agreed. It seemed to be a unanimous decision to make it more difficult to find out what was really going on. And I was shocked by that. What, what was your reaction? Well, I suppose uh, not necessarily surprised, but bitterly disappointed that they'd go down the foolish path of creating a discontinuity in our understanding of NAPLAN results year after year, because the whole advantage of NAPLAN, you can look at the trend in a school, you can look at the trend in a classroom, which I know they do in New South Wales. So you can identify a failing school, you can identify a failing teacher and do something about them. But now they've created this discontinuity that next year's results won't be comparable to this year or last year, um, then the uh, identification of failing schools and teachers becomes so much harder. And, uh, you know, they've, they've watered down the, the categories of achievement. Uh, but, David, this is the problem we've got, whether they're Labor, Liberal or National Party education ministers like Sarah Mitchell here in New South Wales, they are captive to their bureaucrats, they are captive to soft, woke, left-wing education establishment thinking, uh, the education establishment has never liked NAPLAN because they don't like testing. They go, oh, it puts too much pressure on the on the kids. Well, try the, try the pressure of poor school results and, and and a life of welfare dependency. Try that for pressure. So I mean, it's a it's a complete false horizon to be against NAPLAN, and 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 they won't abolish it. But what they're doing is trying to destroy it through the back door. Yes. 
Can we move on then to the situation in Australia? And I'm wondering whether Australians are giving up on the major political parties. And uh, I recently read an essay by Rick Brown, who's a political strategist. He was very close to BA Santa Maria. And uh, this uh, essay he's written, which has been published by the IPA, is entitled Politics in the 21st Century, The Gulf Between Two Nations. Now, Rick Brown was the director of Australians for Constitutional Monarchy during the referendum, and he gave some valuable advice to us. We had a coordinator in every electorate. We had lots of volunteers. We had, we had 50,000 volunteers across the country, a whole army of them. But we had a coordinator in every electorate. And in those days, we had the great advantage that you voted on one day. You didn't vote over two weeks or whatever it is now, one day. So it was easier yeah. to arrange those things. And as, a, as the director, he advised us, go to the outer electorates go to the outer suburbs, go to the country electorates, the regional electorates, don't worry about whether they're Labour or Liberal, that's where we should be going. And he proved to be quite right. He points out in this paper, which is an IPA paper, that in the 2002 Menzies lecture, which you gave at King's College in London, you were one of the other or earlier politicians to detect that there was a, an emergence of two distinctive political cultures in Australia. And you said of the Republic referendum, the further one went away from the centre of the capital cities, the higher the proportion of the no votes. Well, that, was that the beginning of this emergence? Was that when you first detected the, the emergence of two cultures? Uh, yes, well, I, I represented the outer suburban seat of Werriwa, which uh, voted no uh, against the Republic. Um, and, um, you know, I, I would say I was a member of parliament who went to a lot of events, spoke to a lot of people, was pretty well grounded in that community where I've lived uh, all my uh, life, really. So, you know, I knew the outer suburbs like the back of my hand and uh, the difference was clear that when I went to Canberra, you'd have to argue within a city type MPs who represented communities that were abstract, theoretical, subject to cultism, uh, wanting to impose their values and way of life upon other people, uh, which is, you know, the standard leftist methodology. But in the outer suburbs that I represented, people uh, weren't so much interested in the abstract or theory. They're interested in evidence of what works in practice. They're empirical. They're very practical in their attitude about um, uh, politics and and, and community life, that, that uh, what mattered wasn't some abstract theory, what mattered was what worked, and the evidence was paramount. So um, that's a big difference between the inner city elites and the outer suburban and, and, and non-metropolitan uh, practical outsiders. I coined the expression the insiders in the political establishment were the inner city elites, the outsiders were in the suburbs and the regions, and the outsiders had yeah, a very, very different view of how to live your life and how to judge public policy. It seems the Labor Party was the first party to fall, it, it, to change itself. It changed from being a working class party to a party more representative of the elites. 
Kim Beasley Sr. once famously saying that when he first joined the Labour Party, it represented the or contained the cream of the working class. And he said, now it contains, this was some time ago, now it contains the dregs of the middle class. And that that has continued in the Labour Party. John Howard slowed down a similar development in the Liberal Party. Part of the reason for the holding of the Republic referendum was that Keating was able to use it so well as a wedge in the Liberal Party. And when a lot of Liberal politicians read in the Australian that uh, the Republic was inevitable, they began to jump onto the Republic bandwagon. The, the Liberal Party was completely divided politically at the political level over the Republic. And what Alexander Downer did and uh, John Howard followed was, well, let's put this off to a convention. And if the convention comes up with a model, put that to a referendum. And that killed it as a big divisive thing among the Liberals. And then John Howard developed the theory of the broad church, that within the party you had both conservatives and liberals. That worked during John Howard's term, but I don't think it's working today. We're seeing two major parties which seem to have divorced themselves from their traditional supporters. They're both vying one another for influence among the inner city elites and the Liberal Party's crashed in that regard with the Teals. The Teals have pushed them out of the inner city electorates. So what is the future for these two major parties, do you think? Well, they've got declining primary votes, and I think that's their future because they've lost touch with the people they're supposed to represent. Um, there are Liberal Party New South Wales ministers like Matt Keane, Rob Stokes and Mark Speakman who would easily fit into the Green Party room. If you just blindfolded yourself and heard their rhetoric, you'd think, ah, I'm in the Green Party room here, such as their left-wing commitment to um, all the woke causes under the sun. So the Liberal Party has uh, sort of been hit by a pincer movement, really, of uh, globalists on one side and the DNI diversity and inclusion mob and renewable rent seekers who push out the woke ideology uh, on the other side. So they've got dreadful problems. The Howard Broad Church is bursting at the pulpit because uh, that Matt Keane, who's a Green and those other Greens, could sit in the same party room as traditional social and family conservatives, religious conservatives, is evident of, of the problem they've got because they've got this internal faction fighting. The Hills Districts become the Balkans of the New South Wales Liberal Party and, and there's news about it every day. So the broad church is fractured and the Labor parties move well to the left as well. So I, I, I like to think of One Nation as the mainstream common sense party that's interested in evidence and practicality much more than these woke theories. And I think, David, you know, the classic example you mentioned, um, uh, Kim Beasley Sr.'s quote about the Labor Party, the classic example is to think of Ben Chifley, who uh, uh, you know, was a pretty basic guy from Bathurst and a train driver and, and, and no tertiary qualifications. The thing that's happened in all these parties is that people got a tertiary qualification and thought, ah, I am now smarter, I know better than the people I represent. I'm smarter than them. I can work out how they should run their and lead their lives. And I think that tendency in the Labor Party, the National Party, the Liberal Party now is paramount. And you've got a whole bunch of social engineers who don't really represent their electorates in the proper democratic fashion. They rather want to impose an authoritarian view of, I know what's best, I know what these people 
out there in the suburbs and regions should think, how they should behave, what they should believe in, how they should talk, the language they should use, which is the essence of political correctness. And um, this authoritarian streak obviously is driving down their vote because, say, the New South Wales Liberal Party, a lot of their uh, traditional supporters, they don't recognise who they are today, certainly not the party of Griner and John Howard. Um, so if you don't recognise the political party, then obviously that party loses support. And that's reflected in the elections when uh, they can't get out the members of the Liberal Party, or particularly the traditional members of the Liberal Party, because they've gone on strike. If they haven't left the party, they're on strike and they're not interested. Can we, yeah. in the last few minutes, just uh, talk about a few things? I was surprised when the Premier, without uh, apparently Cabinet support, joined in support for the voice referendum at the meeting of the National Cabinet. Were you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the voice really is the son of ATSIC. I was there as Federal Labor leader in 2004 when I proposed and John Howard acted to abolish ATSIC, which would become a, a, a body that was incestuous, corrupt, ineffective, wasting huge amounts of public money. Uh, for those who don't remember, it was the uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander mm. Commission uh, set up by Robert Tickner. And, um, you know, this is what the voice will be. It'll be a uh, committee uh, empowered by the Constitution and, and the Albanese government to uh, spend money, to uh, give binding advice to government, to exercise a veto power, to, access, uh, to act like a, a third chamber of parliament uh, that's made up of those who fed off the Aboriginal industry, who's sort of part of the establishment, get in the media, and uh, by its nature, that committee will ignore the real-life tragedy of Indigenous squalor, welfare dependency, drug and alcohol problems, child sexual abuse that you get, particularly in remote communities. So Jacinta Price, who knows the problem, uh, has pointed out the voice, yet another uh, Indigenous committee won't solve any of these problems. In fact, they'll be a distraction from the real practical things that need to be done to give uh, a young Indigenous person growing up in a community where there's child sexual abuse, huge rates of school truancy, the same opportunities in life that we would take for granted here in the middle of Sydney. So um, I, I saw a, a stat, David, uh, the other day that uh, there are some 85 publicly funded Indigenous advisory committees around Australia. <laughs> I don't understand how an 86th is going to make any difference at all, but that's what the voice will be. And if it is only advisory, as Albanese says, why would you need to write it into the Constitution? No, it's going to be a, um, a, a powerful body that ignores the real-life problems of Indigenous people. And we just don't know what the High Court will do with it. When, they, when a matter is Indigenous, too many judges go to water and decide that they know what is best for the Indigenous communities. And uh, we saw that in the, the Love case, for example, where they took away from the Commonwealth the power to deport violent aliens who'd been found guilty of violent crime on the basis that they could claim some some Aboriginality. And they weren't Australians, they were aliens. They'd committed violent crimes. The government wanted to deport them and the High Court denied that power to the government on the basis of their very utopian views of Aboriginality. Another matter I'd like to ask you about is uh, the, the government's wish to push turning Australia into what we called a politician's republic rather than a crowned republic. And they're talking still 
They've got a minister, an assistant minister for the Republic, and uh, they're talking about a possible referendum in their second term. I don't think they will. I think they know they'd probably lose it and go down to a worse defeat than in 1999. But, but do you think that they would go ahead with a, a second referendum? Well, if they did, it would be right out of kilter with public opinion. Um, you know, and Cooney was around, out in my electorate aware of where people spoke about the Republic. It was an issue, it's certainly not as important as jobs and health and education and law and order. Um, but people did talk about it a bit, David. It's a long, long while. You know, I talked to thousands of people in uh, a political year uh, in my job. And um, I can't remember the last time anyone ever wanted to have a discussion about the Republic. And uh, when we're talking about blackouts and declining school results and political decay and division and ineffective uh, government, uh, I think people see the Republic now as the ultimate uh, indulgence of the left. And I don't exactly know what that minister for the Republic does, but uh, <laughs> it wouldn't be sitting on the street corner getting much feedback from the Australian people, I can tell you. One of, uh, one of the attractive features I find of the agenda, the national agenda, of your party is that you are in favour of citizen-initiated referendums. Would that also be, apply in New South Wales? Oh, uh, yes. If uh, we had the uh, levers of power, um, I'm a great believer in opening up the system for more democracy. I said to you earlier on, one of the problems is how the political class have become estranged from the practical, empirical views of people in the suburbs and, and, and regions. And one way of uh, getting closer to the people is open up our democracy for more citizen-initiated uh, referenda where they uh, pose the question and, and, and that's binding upon government to follow the will of the people. I mean, we're not democratic enough uh, in our system and, and that's why the major party vote is declining. So where's the harm in allowing people to uh, get enough support to pose a referendum question and then have that determined again by a broader base of uh, democratic will? The Barry O'Farrell opposition proposed uh, setting up a, an inquiry into whether there should be recall elections. That is, people by petition could recall a member of parliament. And they did when they got into government. They set up a, a committee of inquiry. And I think to their great surprise, the committee of inquiry came down with a recommendation saying that uh, recall elections were not inconsistent with the Westminster system. We haven't seen anything on that no. report since that time, would the would one no. nation be in favour of recall elections, do you think? Uh, I think they've got potential. I'd, I'd want to study them a bit more. Um, certainly the people in politics don't want to get recalled out. But if you're doing a, a, a very bad job, why shouldn't your local electorate be able to say, hang on, we'd, we'd like to have a more up-to-date uh, assessment of this person's ability and vote on whether they stay as a member of parliament. The four-year term... It's not, it's not as long as the House of Commons, but uh, the four-year term we have here, um, you know, I think midterm, if people wanted to recall an MP and start again, I think that's uh, democratically sound, but I'd want to have a look at the mechanics of, of how it works in practice. So citizen-initiated referendum we support. The recall, we've got an open mind. On another matter, I think one of the, one of the things which emerged during COVID one of the really appalling things during COVID was the way in which the power to make regulations, I think, was abused. 
For example, in New South Wales, there was a, an announcement taken that they would close down the construction industry. They closed it down for a number of weeks and it cost billions of dollars. What on earth it did in relation to COVID, I do not know. I can't see any possible advantage. It seems to me that the power to make regulations should be more highly regulated in that, for example, it should come before any major regulation should come before the executive council. There should be an explanatory memorandum as there is with legislation explaining why this proposal is being taken. And it should be open to either house. Any regulation should be, it should be open to either house to disallow that. Quite often, at least at the federal le uh, level, they've well, taken yeah, away the yeah. power of disallowance. Do you think we should be monitoring more closely the power of the executive government to make regulations? Uh, absolutely. Uh, the Legislative Council, where I sit, does have uh, an ongoing power to disallow regulations. But in the COVID period you're talking about, they suspended the parliament. So we got very close to a dictatorship, didn't we? A dictatorship of the executive in that uh, the parliament was suspended. The upper house couldn't disallow that egregious um, uh, regulation closing down the construction through no public or health safety justification or outcome. Um, so what can you do? They, if they suspend the parliament uh, in the so-called emergency of COVID, which is a huge, massive overreaction over a long period of time, then, um, you know, democracy itself uh, starts to wilt. That should not be constitutionally possible. I would think. I would think that you could have still met. You could have met by Zoom. You could have met we electronically. To. We tried to. And yeah, we tried to. No, 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 no. no. It's an interesting point. The upper house here tried to meet, but there was a standing order, an archaic one that nobody thought would ever be invoked, that uh, without a minister in the chamber, the parliament yes. had, had, had the chamber collapsed. So the government denied a minister. The government sent a lackey, Trevor Khan, who was the deputy president, to move the point of order, that there's no minister here, there's no member of the executive here, minister or parliamentary secretary, therefore the, the, the meeting collapses. And that's what happened. So we tried to meet uh, and they had an obscure standing order, which has now been changed, that uh, allowed the government to continue with the suspension of parliament. In another, wearing another hat, I had to join with a group of people to see a federal minister. And one of his offsiders said, uh, this was before, this was in the early days of the, the federal government. They said, well, what, do you think we should hold a royal commission? Would there be any advantage in holding a royal commission into what happened under COVID? And I said, well, that really depends on whom you appoint. Because you should really, if there were a royal commission, it should consist of judges who are, have the enormous respect of the po population. And there should be three of them. There shouldn't be just one. So that you get a broad view. But that period really needs a serious examination by a solid royal commission, I think, at both the state and federal level. Do you think one nation would be in favour of a, a royal commission at the state level to look into this? Yeah, Pauline Hanson has said that. The royal commission would need to be national. But, David, we'd need another hour of your program to go through the long list of COVID errors, overreactions, hysteria, missteps. Um, it was a dreadful, dreadful period. Thankfully, most people have moved past it now. But yes, it's our policy to have a Royal Commission to make sure the mistakes aren't repeated in future. Mark Latham, you've been very generous with your time and uh, I do appreciate that and I'm sure the, the viewers appreciate that, particularly as I believe you're approaching your birthday. 
Is that not yes, right? Yes, next Tuesday. But yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. But more, more immediately, uh, you know, the meetings and media work and activities of a election campaign. Uh, tomorrow it's four weeks till election day. So uh, pretty busy at the moment, David, and it's been good to chat across such a wide, interesting range of issues with you. Yeah, and I hope that the uh, the viewers have found it useful. And viewers, don't forget, vote one one nation on the twenty fifth of March. <laughs> and uh, uh, <laughs> for a basic course pitch, advertising pitch. That's what it's all about. What's the position in the Legislative Council? You you can vote above the line or below the line, can't you? Yep. And you can yeah, be yeah, it can be preferential. It doesn't have to be preferential above the line. Is that right? That's optional. Optional preferential. You can vote full out under the line, but our recommendation above uh, above the line in the One Nation box, you just need to vote one for One Nation and that will elect uh, the team that I'm heading, so I'm up for re-election. And um, uh, you'll get people who hopefully will hold the balance of power or take the rough edges off a Labor-Green government and all the other Matt Keane madness that's around. Um, so, you know, we're a party of fighters with a very good record on the issues we've been talking about. So hopefully people will vote for One Nation uh, in that square above the line. And you made yourself available freely, did you not, for this election? You, 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 yeah. you, you stood down so that you could have an election in which you would be involved. You recalled yeah, yeah, your, I'm interested in... You recalled I yourself, recalled myself. Did you yeah, yeah, on the recall, yeah, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> right, on the recall, I've recalled myself. Yes. The eight-year term in the upper house is too long. Yes. So for democratic accountability and, and to get people to judge my performance over the last four years, uh, yeah, I'm up for uh, re-election on the 25th of March. Yeah, it's a self-imposed recall. Good point. Well, uh, congratulations on such a respect for democracy. Thank you very much. <laughs> and I wish you well in the election. I'm David Flint. This is Save the Nation. It's on the new platform, the new and exciting platform, ADH-TV. Thank you.